Qualified Kids acknowledges the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people as the traditional custodians of the country this podcast is recorded on. I recognise their continuing connection to country and pay respects to elders past and present. I recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Qualified Kids. I'm Lou and this is a podcast all about Australian environments and biodiversity. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Mark Hall, who works on a range of projects related to pollinators, but today we're going to be talking about native bees. This episode has been split into two parts. This is part two. Thanks very much for talking to me today. Thanks very much for inviting me. That's okay. Uh, First thing I'll ask you is your pronouns and what traditional country you are on. Yep, so my pronouns are he, his, and I'm coming to you from Jajarong country in central Victoria. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so you are here to talk to us about some special little creatures. Can you tell us what they are? I am. Um, the most special little creatures, in my view, um, native bees. So that's awesome. one of my, my passions uh, is, yeah, all of, the, all of the wonderful little bees that come and pollinate our flowers. So how can we look after our bees, our native bees? Um, it's, it's, they're really one of the simplest things to look after, actually, um, okay. which, is why, which is why they're such a great, a great group to work with as well. And, and I suppose we've been hearing a lot of stories lately about the decline of bees, you know, the, the insect apocalypse, all these kind of bad news stories. Yeah. Um, but there's so many easy things that we can do to, to promote bees um, and bee diversity which is the important thing we want we want lots of different species of bees because they will go to plants in different ways they'll go to some plants will have long tubular flowers some will be kind of an open kind of platform that things can land on and bees will have either a short tongue or a long tongue usually we we separate them out by the by some of their behavioral features which means that that one bee can't go to all of the different flowers. They'll have particular flowers they might want to go to. So we need we need a lot of different types of flowers out there to be able yep. to, to be able to feed all of the different types of bees that we have. Yeah, okay. And vice versa, we need a lot of different types of bees to be able to visit all of the flowers that we have so that we don't lose those. So like any species, really, bees need a few simple things. They need food, so flowers, and we, we put out a lot of flowers um, that they can they can feed on they need somewhere to to be safe and to be able to raise their family so those are just nest sites so we need to allow them to be able to get into the ground um, and have a a secure safe kind of nesting environment or for those in the trees uh, the nesting trees the leaf cutter bees for instance need need trees so if we're removing all of these trees from the landscapes then those bees won't be able to find a home as easily the grounds in farming landscapes and things where people are digging, turning over the soil all the time, it makes it harder for soil nesting bees to nest, obviously. Yeah. But okay. just in your own garden, you can you can leave a few bare areas of earth, um, some areas where you're not mulching so that the bees can actually get in there a bit easier. Some will go in under rocks and under, under um, mulch and things. But you want to have a bit of bare earth there as well that the bees can kind of get into quite easily. Yep. And then, you know, even just dead bits of wood, uh, bee hotels that people are putting up in their gardens that provide a bit of a home for for those tree nesting bees. 
So really, they're the, they're the key things that we need to do, are just planting lots of flowering resources for them and allowing them to, to make a home that's not going to be disturbed um, in their nesting cycles. Other than that, trying to minimise the amount of pesticides we use, because obviously if you're using herbicides that you're that if you're killing flowers, then that reduces the number of flowers there are for the for the bees. And if they land on those, then they're going to pick up some of those herbicides, which might affect them. And insecticides, you know, if people are spraying flies and things in their house, that's not targeted to flies. It's it's also going to get things like bees. So we need to be really careful about all of those kind of things that we're doing. But they're really quite an easy group. You know, you could go out tomorrow and plant some nice flowering plants in your garden, and I guarantee by the spring you're going to have some bees coming in and visiting those. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And you mentioned uh, bee hotels. Can you explain what they are and how the bees actually use them? Yeah, sure. Um, So they're called bee hotels, but really probably a better (laughs) name for them would be uh, maybe an, an insect bed and breakfast or an insect nursery or something. Ah, yes. Okay. Um, they, they attract all sorts of insects. You'll get bees, you'll get wasps, you'll get ants, spiders, all sorts of things coming into these um, crickets, anything you know, yeah. really, anything that wants that kind of little bit of woody structure to, to call a home and be safe. Um, but what they are is they're usually just a, a, maybe a block of wood that's had some drill holes in it or some little canes that are put into these into a into a wooden block, uh, and they are, they just kind of become the the cavity in that landscape that a wood nesting bee would go into. So if they can't find a, a hole that a beetle's made into a tree trunk, they can easily come to these and and find it. Now there's a few things with bee hotels. You need to make sure that they're kind of the right type of material for for bees to come and nest in, and the yeah, right okay. dimensions and things. So so a range of kind of diameter holes that the bees would come in because a small bee won't want to go into a large hole and vice yeah. versa. A large bee wouldn't be able to get into a small hole. Uh, and the length of the the length of the tunnel, the tube that they use, is really important because what a, what bees generally do is lay all their female eggs first and then they'll lay a few males okay. because they want the males to come out first and be ready for when the females come out yeah, wow. um, to mate with them. So if you have if you have bee hotels that are too that aren't deep enough that are too narrow, um, they won't they'll only lay female bees and you won't get the male bees to come out. Oh, okay. So this is an issue with some of the ones some of the bee hotels that are currently being sold in places. Yeah. They're too they're not deep enough. Yeah, you need to have them about you know 15, 20 centimeters deep at least to be really useful. Look, I mean, and these are great to get people interested and and like it's great to have these visuals out there yeah uh, in the public but but we do need to get it right Um, it needs to be backed by science really and what we know about about bees rather than just um you know somebody just saying oh well i've heard about these bee hotels i'll just make something up we really need to kind of have some good guidelines around what is the best to have there um and but then having people there they can put them in their garden i've got one out in my garden here and i just watch and see what see what comes in and most often you will get wasps first you'll get spiders that lurk in there because they like to eat the things coming into <laughs> nest um yep. so that's one of the that's one of the, the downsides i suppose for mm-hmm. the individual bees is they might get predated on more more readily because it kind of attracts a lot of other different insects yeah okay so they might get eaten by a spider for instance 
but it also just provides them with a lot of opportunities for for different homes um, to raise their young. So they do get they get taken up a lot by the by the leafcutter bees and the resin bees, and by another group called masked bees. Okay. So they have this beautiful color. They they call that because they usually have a beautiful kind of yellow base. But they yeah they're another group of of bees that would love to nest in in sort of canes and things. So these might just be canes that you get you pick up from your local hardware. Yeah. Um, that are hollowed out and you just stick those around. Uh, or if you're if you want to get rid of some some weeds, uh, you might want to get rid of blackberries or lantana or wherever you are that have these kind of stems that that are easy to we call them pithy stems because they have a soft material inside that that the bees can easily chew through and and make a make a hole. So you could you could trim those into into length and just hang those up with a bit of string somewhere and that provides some nesting environments for those bees. Okay, lots of cool ideas there. Yeah. So these come in all sorts of shapes, sizes and colours and you talked about the blue banded bee. Are there any other sort of really standout colours or features of any of our native bees? Yeah, so the blue banded bees um, are the obvious ones. A lot of people will be familiar with those because they'll see they're called blue banded because they have these blue and black stripes on their on their bottom on their abdomen, yeah. um, which is what we which what what you call it for an insect is an abdomen is the the back half of the of the insect. So yeah, they're quite distinctive because they have that beautiful colour. They're also quite big um, and round, so you see them flying in. You'll see them coming to your basil or something in your garden. I love those kind of herbs. That's the best thing you can do for. The blue bander bees is, you know, grow some grow some herbs in your in your back garden, and you'll soon have some blue bander bees come come in, okay. as well as native sedges and things like that. But yeah, always always good to have. Um, so blue bander bees, yeah, they're they're probably the most obvious. There's actually a a, a bee that parasitizes the blue bander bee, so right. that means that it comes in, it will lay its egg on top of the um, on top of the egg and little ball provision that the blue banded bee leaves for its young. And uh, so these are called cuckoo bees, much like a cuckoo bird. So ones okay. that will lay their eggs in the nest of another bird species. They'll come in, do this, their their egg will uh, will emerge, their young will emerge first and they eat everything else, including the, the egg or the young of the blue banded bee. Right. So okay. they get a they get a good feed and then they grow up. But these are these are really spectacular looking bees. So they're they're about the size of a blue banded bee as well, uh, maybe a touch smaller, but they often have some beautiful, uh, like neon blue or neon white kind of coloration on them, so dots or, or stripes on them um, that are really distinctive. Um, so you can see those quite vividly. One of them's called the neon cuckoo bee because it's so so shiny blue, the coloration of it. Okay. And I suppose you can put all that energy into into really bright colors when you don't have to do the child the child minding. <laughs> Yes, yeah, you don't have to focus it elsewhere. That's really cool. I hadn't heard of them before. I'll have to have a look at what they look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, even the uh, so the leafcutter bees, they're really they're the bigger ones. There's some that have really bright orange hair on their faces or big red eyes right. um, as well that are really distinctive. You get lots. I mean, you get from the tiniest little ones that you won't see unless you get a get a net and sweep through some some gum trees or some bottle brushes or something and collect those and then look under a microscope. Some of them are tiny 
1.8 millimeter long kind of wow. these that are really tiny. And these, some of these are um, kind of translucent yellow. So they, you can't even see them in the flowers. So yeah, they're okay. really well camouflaged. And it's not until you get them under the microscope that you really see the beautiful detail in them. Yeah, so they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And some are really showy and some are really hard to, to, to kind of see or detect. But, um, yeah, the best thing anyone can do is if they're interested in, in bees or other insects is, you know, have a look at, try and, try and have a look at them under a microscope where you can really pick up all the detail. Because even a bee that just looks black uh, when it's visiting a flower will have all sorts of amazing colours and shapes on it. Yeah, awesome. And you can get little hand lenses. I don't know if that would be enough magnification to see much detail. Yeah, but... yeah look, it is It is for um, for some of the bigger bees, certainly. Uh, even mm. the medium-sized bees, you you will pick up some of those uh, the details. The masked bees are a good example of that. You get a really good sense of where their colour is on their backs or on their shoulders, on their face, yeah. um, just with a hand lens. Okay. Um, but, yeah, some of these tiny ones, yeah, you wouldn't know unless you looked under a microscope. Yeah, okay. And so in order to look at them under a microscope or a hand lens, you need to get quite close. So are they going to sting us? Uh, that's a very good question. The short answer is yes, they can sting. Most mm-hmm. bees can sting. Um with the exception of these, um, the other social bees that we have in Australia, that remember I mentioned the, the 10 or 11, 11 or 12 probably species of stingless bees, we call them, yep. and that's because they don't have a stinger. Okay. They, they don't have a functional stinger, so one that they, they can't actually use it to sting us. Okay. Um, so they, they do, in fact, give you a nasty little bite, though, if, you, if you're disrupting right. them. They will get in. Uh, <laughs> okay. they, will use their, they will use their jaws and they'll bite. So just... It's just an inconvenience. They're not going to harm you in any way, really. Yeah. But it, you can feel it. Um, our other bees do have stingers. The females have stingers. Males don't tend to have stingers. Um, but in all the time that I've been working with native bees, I reckon I've been stung three or four times by native bees, and that's when I've literally had them in between my fingers looking right. at them, and they've just stung my finger to say, yep. please let me go. Yeah. Those species that do sting, would they give the same reaction to someone who does react to, has a bee allergy? Yeah, look, that's a good question. The the anaphylaxis, which the honeybees can cause. Um, That is, yeah, it's a a consideration. Mm -hmm. They don't tend, they, they do hurt a bit when they sting, so they can pack that punch. I haven't heard of any people having major reactions to native bee stings. But perhaps that is just because we don't hear about them as much. The, the native bees don't tend to sting. Yeah. Honeybees, honeybees sting because they live in big colonies and they can afford to do that. An individual yeah. can afford to sting you if they get trapped or, you know, caught out in some way. Their defense is to, to sting you so you don't go and affect the rest of the colony. So they're yeah, sacrificing okay. themselves because the honeybee will die after it stings you. Yeah. Um, their stinger gets stuck inside your skin. So as they fly off, they basically rip their bottom off oh. <laughs> uh, and then and then go and die. Yeah, okay. So, uh, and then that the stinger is stuck in your skin and it continues to inject the, mm-hmm. the venom in there. Right. But that's why, it, that's why it hurts so much. So you want to get the stinger out as soon as you can for a honeybee yeah. sting. Okay. Um, but our native bees, um, they tend to be a bit um, 
less likely to sting you because they live a solitary life and if they if they're using up their stings um, they're not um i mean they don't tend to die in the same way they don't get stuck um yep. but they but they're, they're less risk averse i suppose they, yeah, they don't want to they don't want to risk things they're only going to sting you if they really need to get away yeah okay. so as i say when i was holding them in my fingers but you can have them land on you and and walk mm-hmm. around and so the sweat bees that I mentioned earlier, they're called that because they might like to drink some of the sweat off your skin in summer <laughs> just to okay. get a just to get a little drink. So they, they're sort of like flies yep. more so in that regard. They might just annoy <laughs> you by being on you, um, but they're very unlikely to sting you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they're so varied, so much differences between them. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so we don't know... So relative to how many bees we have, we don't know a lot about them. So what sort of things are you doing or is being done to learn more about them? Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a lot more research being done on native bees these days. Um, in Australia, unfortunately, we haven't had a lot of research done um, other than in more recent decades. Maybe the last 30 or 40 years we've had uh, um, quite a bit more done on bee research but before that we we haven't really had a a long history not like places like america or europe where they have a long history and they know a lot about the trends in in bee behavior and and numbers we don't have a lot of that background information so we're still kind of catching up with how we can determine those sort of long-term trends of what's happening um, so that we can work out whether or not bees really are declining in Australia, what's causing those declines. Yeah, okay. So one project that I'm involved with at the moment is in central Victoria, we're trying to establish pollinator corridors across Mm -hmm. the landscape. That means we just want to link up, say, somebody's garden with the local creek that might have some uh, some flowering or the local grasslands um, nearby. So we want to, there's a whole group of people in the land care networks and things that that are trying to, restore habitat i suppose are planting lots of different different species that we know are attractive to pollinators and trying to put those in between the gardens where we where we're seeing lots and lots of pollinators year round um other than in the cold depths of winter when bees aren't that active yeah but at other times the the gardens are really active most times of the year if you've got if you've got lots of flower diversity um then you'll get lots of bee diversity but the things like grasslands and some of our native areas bushland and creek lines and roadsides and things you might only get um most of your flowering would probably occur in the springtime so so what we want to do is make sure that the bees that are that are coming out in springtime there have access to lots of other floral resources if they want so creating those kind of links to to gardens and other areas as well um or being able to move more around the landscape and and create that kind of diversity that we want. So more more species, more um, more interactions, I suppose. More more ability to move out and and move into new areas of the landscape. Right. That that they weren't so that we can increase their numbers and increase the diversity of the insects that we've got there. Okay. So you're kind of like creating stepping stones as a way for them to move along and find a new place. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, okay. Just like um, a bird when it's born will need to go to a new place and find a nesting site, yeah. bees will need to do that. They need to be able to move around and find resources as much as possible. Bees won't move that far. 
um, they'll, they'll have their nest site and they'll only come out a certain distance to find their food and things and then go back to the nest. So we're trying to make sure that they can find whatever they need within within a really short distance to their nest and that then when their young emerge, they can move further away from that nest and create their own nests and, and have those same resources okay. available to them. So a couple more questions. What path did you take to get here where you are studying bees? Um, yeah, mine's been a bit of a, a roundabout path, I suppose. Um, I mean, as a kid, I was, I mean, I'd kind of lived outdoors. I was always playing um, with kids in the street and doing lots of fun games. So I was always around nature, I suppose. I lived, I grew up in the country as well, uh, where there was always sort of nature around. Um, so I was always exposed to, to plants and animals. My grandparents were really into into flowers they used to judge flower shows um, okay. and and things so uh and created beautiful gardens my mum still uh, is really into her gardening um nice. so lots of different flowering things so I was always around I always saw insects around um it didn't really gel for me probably until um until well into adulthood though when I decided to study environmental science um okay. I was also really keen on birds at that yep. point Still am. I still love birds as well. Yeah, me too. Um, but I, but I wanted to. So I wanted to study um, the environment, and I started off doing some research into birds and looking at at, at how we can help birds survive as well, um, particularly in sort of farmland and things where some of their habitat, lots of trees and things, have been lost. And then I wanted to. I thought, oh, I really want to go back and look at bees as well. Um, they're another group that I that I'm really interested in. Not not too many people were really looking at that and I thought that we, we were probably missing opportunities to research a really important group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I decided to, to get into researching bees as well. And then through my work, I've looked at um, lots of different things like restoring landscapes um, with, with plants to, to try to increase diversity, looking at how important some of our species are for pollinating some of our crops, our foods that we eat. Yeah. Um, like strawberries and raspberries and uh, watermelons and all sorts of all sorts of foods that that some of these bees are really important at pollinating. Um, and then and then now I've uh, I've sort of moved less. I, I do less research now. I, I work as a biodiversity officer for the city of Greater Bendigo, okay. where I'm looking at all sorts of all sorts of diversity. I'm really trying to help the council and the community make good decisions about how we look after all of our natural environments, awesome. including the bees. I'm trying to bring, you know, bring <laughs> the bees back to Bendigo. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's really cool. Interesting journey. Yeah. Okay. What is your favourite thing about what you do? Um, I, look, I'd love, I love springtime. I love being able to, to have an excuse to go out to the, mm-hmm. and just wander around the garden and look at things. I love that it does make you look at things really closely. When you're looking at small things like insects, you have yeah. to look at your environment. You have to be you have to be there. You have to notice things. Um, and it's the sort of thing my six-year-old son just does naturally. You go there and you'll see things because he's just looking like it's yeah. all new for him. And we, so I love that sense of wonder that you get when you're um, when you're looking for for little things like insects. Um, and bees particularly because they're so beautiful and colourful and important. So I love that side of things. I really love this. I love talking about the, about how amazing our our bee 
corner is, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, hopefully by by telling people a bit more about what, what we have, it will inspire, you know, younger kids to, to get out there and have a look and or to plant things that will promote bees into the future. Yeah, great. It's it's really important for kids to know things like that and not just the the cute and cuddly, you know, animals. Uh, I love insects so much. Okay, last question. Is there anything else you would like the listeners to know? Anything at all? Well, there's, well, there's, one, there's one really cool behaviour that I haven't talked about actually, which is okay. um, when I was growing up, we had we had bubble gum called Hubba Bubba. Yep. I don't know if, you, if you're old yep. enough to remember I Hubba Bubba. I definitely know, yep. <laughs> um, so you'd, you'd chew on this bubble gum and you'd try and blow the biggest bubble that you could and often it would yep. blow up in your face and you'd get sticky <laughs> all over you. Well, it turns out that the bees also like to bubble. They like to blow right. bubbles. So you will get... Um, so particularly the masked bees and things that I talked about, um, they will do this quite regularly. They'll go and have a drink of nectar and then they'll, they'll sit on the edge of a, a leaf or something and they'll start blowing bubbles um, right. like that. And the reason they do this is because they're trying to reduce the, the moisture content of that. They're trying to um, okay. get as much of the sugar content as possible and yeah. try to evaporate the water. So they'll blow these bubbles and... And just uh, it just helps the water evaporate off it. Yeah, that's so uh, to, cool. Yeah, to condense that nectar. Um, it's just an amazing thing. So this is this is the thing. If you stand there and you just watch, you'll see this amazing kind of thing. And like, why is why is this why is this bee blowing bubbles? <laughs> um, so I love the fact that you know that we have people that that are researching these things and and really trying to understand why they're doing these things and yeah. picking up on those kind of things. Um, there's another there's another bee up in the tropics in the rainforests of northern Australia that all the males will roost or rest on a on on leaves and they'll all face exactly the same direction on the leaf. <laughs> okay. There'll just be a whole group of them all facing this way, and we have no idea why exactly that is. But you know, this is the this is the curious kind of stuff that you get yeah. when you're looking at at insects, particularly. Um, so I just love, yeah, I love having the opportunity to to go and explore these kind of things and try to understand what we have, uh, and then yeah, encourage people to to do whatever they can to to help them. Yeah, awesome, great. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's been really awesome. No worries, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the guests from this episode or find out more about qualified kids head to the show notes or visit the website qualifiedkids.com.au. Qualified is spelt Q-U-O-L-L-I-F-I-E-D. If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and share it with someone you think might enjoy it too.